Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. Greetings, Third Hour listeners. You are listening to episode 47 of the Third Hour Podcast, First Isaiah. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. I'm Andrew. This week, we are covering, are you ready for this? <laughs> Isaiah chapters 1 through 23, 28 through 33, and 36 through 39. He's not joking. That's what we read. It was a fantastic week. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic month and a half. <laughs> yeah. It was winter. <laughs> you wanna, I, I want to hear how you synopsize like, half of the book of Isaiah. I'm I'm kind of looking forward to this. Well, there's not a whole lot of plot, so <laughs> it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. I psyched myself up really hard, and then it only took a couple of minutes, and I was like, well, what do I do with all this extra psych-up energy? I'll take a nap. So, surprise, surprise, Israel is wicked. It will be punished and redeemed, because eventually, Jerusalem will be the center of worldwide worship. Good for them. Then we repeat judgment against Judah and Israel. In and amongst all the prophecy that takes place in Isaiah, well, what we read of Isaiah, which is most of it, um, we get chunks of quote-unquote history. In the first chunk, Isaiah gets called to be a prophet with that famous live coal to his lip story. Then Isaiah tells King Ahaz of Judah not to ally with Ephraim and Syria against Assyria or with Assyria against them. Ahaz aligns with Assyria anyway, so Isaiah has a son and says that before the child can talk, Assyria will conquer Ephraim because childbirth is the way we should. Yeah, it's fine. So Isaiah prophesies that Assyria will fall and the Davidic dynasty will be restored. Then we prophesy about Babylon, Philistia, the downfall of Moab, Damascus, and Cush, war in Egypt, Babylon being defeated by Assyria, and prophecy about Jerusalem and Tyre. That was like a whole 12 chapters. You're thank you. That was like a whole 12 chapters. You're welcome. Then we jump to chapter 28, which explains why the Lord brought Assyrian rule to punish Israel and Judah, why he's assaulting Zion, why they shouldn't rely on Egypt to help them with Assyria, and what a righteous king looks like. Then we go to 36, where we rehash that bit from Kings, where Assyria sends a mouthpiece to trash talk Jerusalem and tells the people their gods won't save them. Remember that bit? Then King Hezekiah prays for help. Isaiah says that Assyria won't succeed, and the Lord strikes down Assyria's entire camp, which leads to the Assyrian king being deposed. Then Hezekiah gets sick, prays, and is granted 15 more years. But Hezekiah allies with Babylon and gets condemned. Still doesn't die, though. And that's it. Cool. Thank you for listening. <laughs> you can't make that joke every time, Taylor. Have I made it before? Oh, man. Yeah. It's been a while. It's Isaiah's fault. <laughs> well. <laughs> Isaiah. <clears throat> impressions. I have some impressions. Yeah? I, I remember when I was young, there were books, like John, by the way, I don't remember how many it was, but it was like five or 10 keys to understanding Isaiah. Oh yeah. 
that? And I was really curious. And so I uh, checked it out from the, my local library. <laughs> this week, this last, in the last couple of weeks? No. Oh, when, when you were I a was, kid. When I was okay. you know, like oh. 15 or uh-huh. whatever. And um, I, I, uh, and all the keys were like, pay attention to the symbols. Like, it was stuff like that. Yeah. And none of it made any sense. <laughs> and I remember um, about a year ago, I was in Sunday school. And there was a there was a brother in there who I know and who's very studious. He's a doctor, and he was saying he you know he he's been commanded to read Isaiah. He feels, uh, and I think that's debatable. But also rough for him, rough man. <laughs> and so he he said you know I, it's hard because in Isaiah some of this was written for the people of that time, and some was written for people in Jesus's time and some was written for us and it's so hard to pick it apart. And my impression reading all of this just over and over again was that book by John, by the way, and that brother with this complicated, like three tripartite, uh, like time periodization of this, of this text and reading it. I was just thinking, I don't think it's actually that hard to read as long as you understand like a few, like three dates, like three historical events and it all just falls together. And I, so I was musing a lot this past week on how we as a culture are just utterly unequipped to examine it. I so love it when he says stuff that in the back of my brain is like, Oh, I'm so glad that wasn't just me. I'm not just <laughs> up in the night. I'm not just talking to myself. Oh, good. Carry on. Sorry. Well, and that's really, that's really all. And, and I hope that we're going to bring a little bit of ease to the text for some people. So what do you mean? What, what, what were you thinking up in the night? Well, so that this wasn't the impression I was going with, but there was that voice in the back of my head that just kept saying, I feel like Isaiah is supposed to be more difficult than this. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I've heard that someplace and said that to myself before, or was it just a really, was a rough chunk in the book of Mormon? Is that where it's coming from? Is this the easy chunk? And so I spiraled on that for a little bit, but my real impression and now give me a sec to explain this properly because I haven't figured out how to do it quickly and I tried. So in Hamlet, this connects, I swear. In Hamlet, there is this big famous speech from Polonius to his kids and it's the to thine own self be true speech. And it is just full of what we would consider cliches Mm -hmm. dad quote cliches to thine own self be true neither a borrower nor lender be brevity is the soul of wit all these really famous quotes i had one of my shakespeare professors who made the argument that we think that polonius's speech is trite and cliche because it's been around for several hundred years but that if you were to be in the original audience listening to it, you would be mind blown mm-hmm. at how, at like, sure, the concepts had been around forever, but that the phrasing of it was so perfect that it became something that gets passed down for several hundred years, um, which is 
pretty on par for Shakespeare. He had no original ideas, but was really good at the words. And that is the clearest way I can think of to explain how I felt about Isaiah. That I don't know if it is actually... I feel like I'm going to get struck by lightning if I say boring. (laughs) (laughs) And like, (laughs) kind of, you know, I've, I've heard this before. Nothing in it like shook my bones like the... Was it Amos that I loved? I loved Amos. It was we Amos. All really yes. Because yeah. I, I, for some reason, the, their two names just keep switch swapping in my head. But that, like, yeah, Amos was the same concepts, but it shook me. Whereas nothing in Isaiah shook me. And I don't know if that's Isaiah or if it's like Polonius that I've heard it a gabillion times. And so it's lost its shaking. Yeah. I, you know, I was noticing that a lot that you're reading along and it's this unfamiliar material. And then you hit the clump of like four verses that we repeat. Yeah. Not just as Mormons, but Christians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's utterly out of context. Yes. And like, it, you know, there's this, there's an old joke that Christianity is a misreading of the Hebrew Bible and Mormonism is a misreading of the New Testament. And reading through this, I was feeling that doubly. Yes. Because not only are there passages that Christianity, you know, this is the fifth gospel, right? Yeah. That Christians just rip it out of there and run with it. But there's also sections that are uniquely Mormon in terms of ripping it out of there and just running with it and and proof texting and misquoting. Yeah. And so it's really fast. So reading through it, I hit those landmines and I'm suddenly like, whoa, suddenly I'm in familiar territory. But reading it from this critical perspective gives it a whole different set of meanings. And to be fair, I don't want to actually be too critical there because some of the context we didn't have, for instance, in Joseph Smith's day, for instance, Sargon II was actually not rediscovered until 1860. Hmm. (laughs) Everyone thought he was a fictional king Uh until archaeologists like found all these inscriptions about Sargon II and like, oh, I guess there really was a, And and that's really important for one of the three historical events that occurs in this reading in Isaiah's lifetime. And so, you know, we do understand a lot of this history a lot better in 2023, and hopefully we'll continue to understand it better than we did in the 1840s and 50s. Yeah. And yeah, or in the, in the fifth, first century. Yeah. Right? When, cause I mean, misquoting this starts in the new Testament, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it even starts before then. Yeah. Right. Like, People were anti- the the entire notion of anticipating a Messiah is a misunderstanding of. I mean, then we're getting into Second and Third Isaiah, but of Isaiah, where people thought it was one unified text, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's kind of where my brain's been, and I don't I don't have a fully formed impression on this yet, which I guess is becoming a theme too. <laughs> Maybe that's why I want to keep wrapping it up after the synopsis, <laughs> but I just. I've been thinking a lot about how we read critically while giving proper sort of due and respect and dignity to all the different ways this text has been read and is sacred to people in real ways. Yeah. And one of the reasons I want to read it critically is because I think the ways that Christians and Mormons have handled this has been disrespectful to the Jews. 
I think I think some of the people who need to be respected are the people that it was originally intended for. And I think if we're unwilling to do a critical reading and find ways in which, oh, this isn't about me, <laughs> like then then we can't respect them. But I, I also have this sense that, you know, like you just pointed out, Andrew, this reading of it as anticipating a Messiah isn't even, it's not unique to Mormonism. It's not even unique to Christianity. Judaism does it too. And so, and obviously in different ways, but trying to figure out how to sort of sift through all those layers and decide what I want the text to mean to me. I just, I feel unsettled about it still. I don't quite know how to approach it other than I want to have the conversation we're having here to get my, to get the best sense I can get of what Isaiah was actually saying. I think that's an important part of the puzzle for me as I try to put that all together, but I don't, there's all these other pieces that I think, we're not going to talk that much about tonight because that's just not what we're doing in this podcast, but they're very present to me in my mind, both out of respect for others and also out of respect for like my former self, right. That, that read it this way for so long. Anyway, that's my unformed rambly impression. <laughs> we should probably start if you're a new listener and you don't remember way back in the book of Mormon season, when we talked about Deutero Isaiah, we should probably start talk about why we're calling this first Isaiah and why we're jumping around so much. So maybe, Andrew, do you want to introduce us to what we mean by First Isaiah and, and how we picked these particular chapters to talk about? In general, um, scholarship, and I, and I want to point out that this is a multi-faith scholarship, that this consists not only of Christian scholars, but also Jewish scholars, and Christian, of course, across many denominations. So, in fact, when we examine scripture critically, you you immediately belong to one of the most uh, broad interfaith coalitions of all time. <laughs> so when we talk about doing right and paying dignity to the text by reading it critically, we are actually including people from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, many of them have become secular, unsurprisingly, um, since investigating this text, but not all of them have. So you'll find Catholics and Orthodox and Evangelicals. You'll find Mormons. Uh, you'll find all sorts of Protestants. You'll find Jews of all stripes who this is their approach to the text. Now, the basic gist is that Isaiah has always presented a big problem. And that problem is it's a big text. And it is so big that it seems like it couldn't have been written by one person, um, in part because the text covers effectively three separate centuries. And that, you know, I don't know about you or your, <laughs> your family members, but that presents a problem for anyone who lives a reasonable lifespan. So Isaiah is going to cover three time periods, and not only is it going to cover three time periods, but it's going to change the way it speaks. It's going to change its thesis. It's going to change its audience. It's going to change its antagonist. All of these things will change. It will talk, it, it's, uh, its theology will change. The way it talks about God will alter. Soteriology will change. The way it talks about what happens to us in terms of this broad notion of what God is going to do for us and what we owe to God. These will all change. And what does that represent? Does it represent one author over three centuries with changing perspective or more recently, in the, only in the last century, have scholars 
reached the conclusion that actually this is very likely three totally separate authors. And we, is, is it really only my, so my Bible says that as early as the, like in the middle ages, the, the, the rabbinic commentator, Abraham, even Ezra started talking about multiple settings for the book of Isaiah. So people have suspected that this may be multiple authors for a long time, but it's only in the last century that it's reached consensus. Okay. And been seriously considered by scholars. And basically, it's hard to find a scholar who doesn't think that now, who isn't an apologist. Yeah. So who is someone who actually does not directly interface with the scholarship. But that's the state of it now. Now, where those lines are drawn is a little bit tricky. So, for instance, today we're going to be reading selections from 1 through 39. Now, we're going to be reading most of it. And we're going to be reading four segments. In total, 1 through 39, which is what we call proto-Isaiah, meaning first Isaiah, probably was actually a man named Isaiah who had flowery language and was a member of the court of Hezekiah. And he wrote a bunch of speeches and would sometimes parade around naked <laughs> and was a bit flamboyant for his time. And was not he was, in, he was a member of the court, but he was a little bit on the outs. We're going to have at least two stories where Isaiah is clearly kept in the dark about courtly machinations because he's so annoying <laughs> or because he might leak state secrets to the Assyrians because he would go out and start screaming about the messengers to Egypt and so forth. Oh. And Assyrian spies would be like, well, I guess our <laughs> underlings are negotiating with the Egyptians and that would be very bad for the king. And so Isaiah is sort of not a major member of the court. He's on the outer periphery of it. Um, that's if we take his word for granted. And we have no reason necessarily to doubt him. He also appears, as you might remember, in Kings. Mm -hmm. Now, this Isaiah, between 1 and 39, which is what we call proto-Isaiah, there are um, six sections. The third and the fifth section are almost certainly written later and then inserted backwards. So we're going to be skipping those today because, again, the topic of those changes. So today what we're reading, the, the four sections are specifically the ones that are almost certainly actual Isaiah. One, two, four, and six. Yes. Okay. Those, the, the first, second, fourth, and sixth sections. Okay. And... And should I, should I mention the three years that matter? Yeah. So there's three dates that you'll want to know. And these dates are, are very important for understanding what Isaiah is talking about. So the first date is 736 through 732 BCE. This is the Syro-Ephraimite War. We've talked about it before, but I'm happy to refresh our memories because... There's like a bazillion wars. Um, <laughs> so you might remember that the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Ephraim in here, Israel, has broken away from Judah. Now, nearby, there is the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They just call it Assyria. They don't call it Neo. That's our periodization because it's the second time the Assyrians have become big. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the Assyrians are conquering everybody. And so a couple of groups get together. One of them is Aram, which its capital is Damascus. It allies with Israel. They want to create a coalition to break away from Assyria because they are vassals. 
they reach out to other people in that region and look for allies in the war. Now, some of these allies include places like Egypt and what we would call Ethiopia, okay, or Nubia. And they reach out to these places and try to form a grand coalition. Well, right in the middle of the crossroads is Judah. The, Judah does not want to join this coalition. And so Aram and Israel fight a war of assassination to try to remove the king, and uh, King Ahaz, and force Judah into an alliance with them against Assyria. Now, so we would try and murder Ahaz and then put someone on the throne who is sympathetic to our cause. Yes. And if you remember all the machinations in Kings, this is happening all the time. Yeah. It's real hard to keep track of which yeah. murder it's which. And so this war is going to conclude with Judah being a vassal of Assyria with Aram and Israel being hit really hard, including the Northern Kingdom being carried away on one of its deportations, which, as you might recall, was more uh, fragmentary than the text would, this than Kings, Chronicles is different, than some of the text would have you believe. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the first major date in Isaiah's life. He's going to have a lot of opinions about this, and he's actually going to be kind of pro-Assyria at certain points in his life. Mm -hmm. At the same time... Wait, did just let me clarify one thing. In his life, meaning proto-Isaiah of this chunk that we're reading in more or less 1 through 39. Yes. Not Isaiah in the loose ephemeral quote. That unquote. is correct. Proto-Isaiah. Okay. So the okay. first big critical event of his lifetime is the Syro-Ephraimite War. Okay. Now, in that war, Babylon is actually going to rise up. And so when he issues a curse against Babylon, it's because Babylon is also an enemy of Assyria. So he is not condemning the Babylon of later that will conquer Israel. It's easy to see how later they would read it that way. Yeah. But Babylon was an enemy of Assyria because it rose up against them. And in fact, Assyria has to go in and wipe out Babylon multiple times, four times actually. And the fourth time they raise it to the ground. Okay. Now, so that's the first date. The second date is the year 701. Assyria is now being mean. That's the gist. How unexpected. <laughs> Assyria comes down and Assyria besieges Jerusalem. Now, the first, the, this first war, the Syro-Ephraimite War, that was under the King Sargon II, the guy who we didn't even know existed until 1860. Okay. We thought he was fictional. This later one is the King Sennacherib, who he comes down and he besieges Jerusalem. Now, we know a lot about him. Um, from other sources, including Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, hmm. who actually fills us in a little bit about another perspective on this military campaign from the Greek perspective, as opposed to over here in the Semitic perspective. So what happens is Sennacherib comes down and he destroys like 45 cities, carries away a bunch of people. He comes to the border of the city and the king and King Hezekiah has to pay him off with so much silver that he even has to strip the temple. Even then, Sennacherib is besieging the city. Now, Isaiah is going to have a lot of pointed things to say about Assyria, whereas in other parts of the text, he is pro-Assyria. Because in a different time, we're talking about 20 years later, right? Now, Assyria is the enemy. 
Now, you might recall in Kings that the way that that shakes out is that Isaiah and Hezekiah confer, and Isaiah says he will be defeated without without us having to fight. Yeah. And then what happens is a bunch of people die in their retreat. Although the king's story is slightly different because it's the Arameans, not the Assyrians, to whom that happens. Mm-hmm. But oh, forgot that. <laughs> but so we kind of have two stories that get merged in Isaiah because we do hear about the invasion of Sennacherib, but he was bought off. But then there is also the invasion by the Arameans that they all like die randomly and flee. Those stories kind of get merged in the Isaiah telling. And Herodotus, and, and, and both in Kings and in Isaiah, then it just is like, and Sennacherib was killed for his wickedness by the Lord. Yeah. Although that was 20 years later. And in the ensuing power struggle, his chosen heir is the one who rose to preeminence. So really not, it's kind of hard to connect someone dying 20 years later as an old man with this. Well, what Herodotus adds to this is he does talk about the campaign of Sennacherib in 701 BCE, where he comes down into Judah. And he says that Sennacherib's army was overwhelmed by rats, which likely means that what happened was bubonic plague Mm. happened Mm. to Sennacherib's army. And that's why he chose to leave. But remember that even though this is going to sound like a victory from Isaiah's perspective, Sennacherib accomplishes every strategic aim of his campaign. He acquires border towns. He is paid a huge ransom for Jerusalem. And then it's true he doesn't actually conquer Jerusalem, but he kind of leaves them as a tributary state and leaves. So it's, you know, may I never have a victory like that (laughs) where I pay my enemy, lose all my towns and pay him, you know, every year thereafter. Yeah, although to be fair, if they were going to conquer Jerusalem, I mean, I'd I'd still be glad if I was living in Jerusalem that it stopped there. Yes, I would be too, but I wouldn't be so silly as to call it a victory. So, well, it's so interesting because a plague of rats is hardcore Bible story, and so it's so interesting that that's not what we end up with. Nothing about that because that would fit in here. Yeah, well, it may it may be that. The Greeks, who the Assyrians were trading with, were more friendly, and therefore Herodotus had was privy to information that mm-hmm. was not useful to write down, or they didn't know, or something. And that's the last year, is um, 681, so another 20 years later, when Sinatra is going to die of assassination and kind of have God given as the reason by Isaiah. So those three dates, each about 20 years apart. This is the, uh, that is the political backdrop for Proto-Isaiah. And it's very helpful to know all of those things because he's going to give all these omens and curses and they pretty much all have to do with those three events. Is that helpful? Yes. Should I stop rambling? Have a copy. Take a break. Taylor's like, this was not as useful as I thought. No, very interesting. I'm an so, auditory learner, so it's very helpful for me. So as we move through the four parts that you mentioned, are they more or less chronological or do they get scrambled? There is a bit of scrambling. That's what I thought I remembered. Because like the death of Sennacherib is kind of in the middle, isn't it? Maybe. I, I yeah, it's kind of. So like, for instance, so chapters one through 12, these are oracles against Judah. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're all kind of linked. And um, 
And this is likely set during the Syro-Ephraimite War. So the, the first event. However, nobody is entirely sure. Like this could also include elements that were written later from the Assyrian invasion that were then inserted. You have to remember that preservation of text was not a big thing. People did see this as an open canon. You could amend your speeches and change your prophecies freely, which is not very helpful to us 2,700 years later. (laughs) Um, But that is the case here. But on the whole, this is likely, the first section is likely in the context of that first war. So as I tried to, so as kind of taking that, I, I don't know that we're going to go through like every chapter as we march through this big section. Oh, we don't have time for yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have time. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's worth trying to pull out, like you said, Andrew, this first kind of 12 chapters is mostly pointed at Judah. And I think that, in that way, this felt very familiar to me in terms of some of the other prophets we've read, Amos, and what was the other one we've read so far? Hezekiah, is that right? Mm-hmm. No, Hezekiah. Well, no. Hosea. 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 Yeah. Hosea. But I, what, what are the themes we pull out in terms of how Isaiah sees the problems in his society? I mean, I think in the, in the first chapter, just to kind of start us off, there's clearly some echoing of some similar things that Amos is saying where – Isaiah is making this argument that they're too focused on ritual sacrifice. That's not really what God cares about. He wants justice. He wants them to take care of the poor. But I didn't feel like that continued as clearly as it did in Amos. I mean, Amos is clearly like, like that's what the whole book is about, yeah. right? And here I see hints of it in Isaiah, and then it kind of fades back into the background to where it's a little bit harder for me to parse, to be honest. It wasn't as clear to me. So I'm curious what themes you pulled out in terms of how what is Isaiah's critique of Judahite society? I think I think one way to think about it is that Isaiah is very much in the tradition of Amos. Yeah. The way that you might recall in the New Testament that Deuteropauline authors are in the tradition of Paul, but some of his message gets diluted. Yeah. yeah. Something similar seems to be happening here. Isaiah is going to repeat many of the complaints of Amos, but kind of from more of a geopolitical stance, which means he's not, he is going to bring up the poor yeah, and he is going to assault the rich, but he isn't going to do it as often or as pointedly. And it kind of slips in, like you'll get a verse set about it. Right. Yeah. But on the whole, he's more interested in kind of these broad geopolitical schemes, but he still seems to attribute like he's closer to Amos than to the Deuteronomist. Yeah. Um, Small mercies. Yeah, he, he isn't actually all that interested in cultic paraphernalia. Like he will mention it sometimes. Like you'll 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 hear mention of like cutting down groves and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But he doesn't care about it quite as much as like the Deuteronomist. Just every single king in his telling was like, did they cut down the groves or not? You know, <laughs> and just like obsessed with these groves and everything. Isaiah will mention them but he doesn't seem to care about them quite as much. So I, that's my understanding. That's what I get out of it when I read. He does seem to be interested in, in a message that is, despite being very dire, ultimately somewhat hopeful. Yes. He wants to, he, he, he perceives the covenant that is being offered to Judah as being one of a choice between life and death. And People are free to choose which one they will do. It's just that he's a bit of a pessimist and he thinks they're going to choose death. But even if they do choose death, 
he offers a future reconciliation. So already he's thinking, and which inhabits his mind view, to me, his worldview pretty uh, comfortably, given that over half of the house of Abraham has been destroyed Yeah, from his perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a theme that I noticed, and one thing that I think does make. Well, I I tend to agree with your both of your uh, impression that this gets a lot easier to read. I mean, having read Kings, knowing some of this history, it got a lot easier. But one place where it still felt a little sticky to me, where I wasn't quite able to follow, it was this sort of hope for the future. I couldn't always tell, like, who is this remnant going to be? Like, what? How is he understanding this to play out? And yet. And also it, it gets weaved in a lot. I mean, it would be, I found it surprising. You'd be reading along bad things, bad things, bad things. And then it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of, it, it often felt suddenly juxtaposed against other problems. And, and, you know, that idea of a restoration is belongs more to a Deutero or Trito Isaiah than to first Isaiah. Hmm. We're going to see hints of it. But for the most part, he isn't quite as interested in the later restoration as he is in current critique. Um, but it's very easy to infiltrate that perspective into proto-Isaiah. For instance, in chapter um, 3, 3, 4, when he talks about, and I will make boys their princes and babes shall rule over them. And we draw out of this notion that by the time of the second temple, this is going to kind of become this idea of like, oh, like young pastoral attitudes are better than the educated and wealthy. Except that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the elevation of young people, of babies and the young, is an utter disaster. Yeah, It's terrible. But when we read it from this Zionist perspective, this idea of a restoration, now we're digging through the text and we draw this notion out like, and children will be the ones who rule. They're the wise ones. That's not what it's saying. Yeah. And it's very easy to misread it because we take so much into the text, including not partitioning it between authors. Yeah. And he makes that pretty explicit just later on, like in verse 12, my people's rulers are babes. It is governed by women. Sorry, Amanda. It's cool. Oh, my people, your leaders are misleaders. They have confused the course of your path. So it's very explicit there that it's not a positive thing. Yeah. yeah. Women leaders. And I'm not even wearing a hat. <laughs> you have a hood, hoodie. <laughs> now, now the morality police can't kick down the door. Yes. Um, but we still get, I like, we invoke Sodom, for instance. Lots and lots. But we do get the, uh, he does like discuss like, what is the sin of Sodom? And we get the sense that again, it's social justice. It's not right. It's not what we bring to the text culturally. (laughs) Right. And, and there is genuine, there is genuine interest in redemption, right. In, in proto Isaiah as well. I mean, I see what you're saying that we trade extra, but I mean, like for example, in verse four in chapter four, verse two, in that day, the radiance of the Lord will lend beauty and glory and the splendor of the land will give dignity and majesty to the survivors of Israel and those who remain in Zion and are left in Jerusalem. All who are inscribed for life in Jerusalem shall be called holy. So there's this sense of some amount are going to stay. Yes, but who is it a restoration for? It's Israel. Right. It's Ephraim. Right. It is. Oh. It is not necessarily for Judah. 
Well, it also says who are left in Jerusalem, right? So it it says both. That's right, because Jerusalem is in his lifetime is growing fivefold with refugees from Israel. Interesting. So his his notion of a restoration, once Judah falls, it becomes a future Zion. Yeah. He is talking about a Zion that will be restored from the rest of Abraham's descendants because 10 of the tribes were just wiped out and ransacked in the north. He isn't talking about some theoretical future prophetic restoration. He's talking about a tangible restoration that he can see the refugees coming in right now. And when coupled with his social justice emphasis that you do have to take care of these people because they are being neglected. Of course they are. They yeah. always are. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to frame it correctly. That this, he is talking about a restoration and a redemption. And he is speaking about it in a future sense because it hasn't happened yet. But the refugees from Israel are in Jerusalem. Yeah. Is that clarifying or yeah? I mean, you can disagree. A lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have the ability to disagree. I'd have to study it a lot more to disagree. Well, <laughs> you've been commanded to study Isaiah, so do it or die. In the middle of this sort of prophecy that that a lot of it has the flavor we've been discussing, comes this kind of strange chapter where Isaiah gets commissioned. Should we pause there for a minute and talk about that in chapter six? Yeah. So we get this sort of pause in him talking to Jerusalem. And and as, and we've sort of been highlighting some of the themes that we're more used to in the modern day, but I think we did point out, I think it's worth repeating again. A lot of his themes are like very simple, like foreign policy arguments, like don't ally with Egypt. And and just it, it says the year that King Uzziah died is when he's called. That's 742 BCE. So that would be basically five years before the start of the Syro-Ephraimite War. Okay. And 10 years before it ends. Okay. So before we really get into this crisis of refugees coming south. Um, and we get this story that I, I, at least this is one I'm familiar with. This is one of the places where I'm like, oh, I'm back in familiar territory. Yep. Um, he finds himself in God's court. Uh, he panics. He says, woe is me. I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And one of the courtiers who's a, what do they call it? Seraphim or cherubim or something, right? Comes and puts uh, coal on his lips and says, now you're clean. And then we get this really strange commission where God says, go say to that people hear indeed, but do not understand. See indeed, but do not grasp. Dole that people's mind, stop its ears and seal its eyes lest seeing with its eyes and hearing with its ears, it also grasp with its mind and repent and save itself. And there's even actually some geopolitics going on here because seraphs are, the seraphim are actually not native to Israel. Hmm. They're Syrophoenician. And in that case, they would spread their wings to protect the deity. But here they're shielding their eyes from the glory of the Lord. Oh. And so their role is inverted from what these foreign gods' attendants do, where to Isaiah he's saying, well, these same attendants who guard their gods are here, but our God needs no protecting. Instead, they are blinded by his radiance. And so there's sort of this inversion of what we see in uh, archaeological evidence of what they're, you know, these cultic objects were doing that's fascinating what do we make of this 
commission. Is it worth talking about that for a minute? I mean, my footnotes didn't really know what to make of it exactly. They gave a couple of possibilities, but it's a strange commission, right? Like intentionally teach in a way that they won't understand is kind of how it reads. I think we need to put a pin in it, right? Because he is going to kind of hit on this idea of no one comprehending his message multiple times. And, and I think it's going to be very important when we reach a particular section that Mormons latch onto, because he's not only thinking no one comprehends his message, but he may be deliberately obfuscating his own message um, for some sort of, for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's on the outs, he's on the outside with the court. He's trying, maybe he's trying to be plausible deniability. Yeah. Or maybe he's justifying or... his position. We don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's the story he seems to be t- telling about himself to himself, uh, whether divine or not, he believes that his message cannot, nor should it be fully understood. And we'll see shades of that as we go forward. So then we get, Again, heavily into the Ciro Ephraimite crisis, and 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 we get a little bit of plot here where the king hears about the alliance and panics, and and Isaiah says, "Don't panic." And this is one of the verses that gets pulled out by Christianity. It's probably worth. Yeah, so here. so we've got three children, and we're kind of doing the Hosea thing, right? yeah, mm-hmm. like pretty much exactly. So again, he's remember Hosea was also in the tradition of Amos. We're probably seeing this again, yeah. right? That in a way, maybe Isaiah is Trito Amos, <laughs> that he sees himself as carrying on a tradition. He's riffing on other prophecies that right. he may have heard. And so here he gives three names of these children, and they're all very loaded names and have specific meanings. And Christians reach in and pluck out that second one with a really dire misreading also from the Hebrew, because <laughs> uh, it does not say virgin. Um, yeah, it just says young woman, but each of the names. So we have a uh, share Joshub, a remnant shall return. And again, easier to think of this as the remnant of Israel, not Judah. And I- a remnant is returning as they speak. Right. The second is Emmanuel probably means God is with us because in this conflict, they're specifically worried about the integrity of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So this is comfort that Isaiah keeps offering. Jerusalem will be okay, um, which is in stark contrast with the way we read Deutero and Trito Isaiah, because Jerusalem is in fact not okay. Right. Um, and then the third one, which I would love for someone else to try to pronounce it, uh, <laughs> Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which basically means hurry to the spoils. It literally is hasten booty hurry spoils. <laughs> Is how we read it literally. <laughs> so, um, but this idea that Aram is going to collapse and Assyria will destroy it. So the people who are besetting him and Jerusalem will be defeated by Assyria. So again, note Assyria is a good guy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, just to pause for a sec. Because like you were talking about earlier, you do just kind of like slam into those chunks that you're so familiar with. And it reminded me of way back in the New Testament season, Taylor, you invested a lot of energy in any time it was one of the Old Testamenty quotes in the New Testament, going back to the Old Testament and trying to parse it out what they were actually talking about in the old Testament. And so 
as I was reading through this, I felt such compassion for the you in the New Testament season trying to <laughs> do that without having been through the Old Testament season. Because and he, the look on his face says he doesn't even remember doing that, which says how useful it was at that time. Um, because now he, I feel like I just slammed into these chunks and like, well, that's not what it says at all. <laughs> I struggle with knowing how to discuss this. I've been dreading Isaiah since we started the Old Testament. Uh-huh. And and like, I want, it matters. I'm one of the people who's trying not to go secular as I read this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I understand why that happens. And I don't, I don't even really feel a need to convince people who have gone secular not to. But I, I want to leave the text porous enough for God to sneak through. And... I don't know exactly how to like let that happen because I, I find the ways in which we're reading Isaiah and discussing it right now compelling. Like I, I don't, I, I, I agree as I was reading this, like there's all these named children and they all mean something very specific about that very specific time. And we pull out the one that's most meaningful to us and make it about us. Yeah. And so did the authors of the new Testament. So my, my facial expression isn't so much about not remembering that as it is about like still kind of wanting to do that. Like how, how do I let the ways in which Jesus's disciples or writers about his disciples shortly after his life, whoever they were, how do I let the ways in which they found continuity in this <coughs> Isaiah's God and Jesus how do I let that make enough sort of porosity in the text that I can still find divine inspiration in it? And I just like, I, I keep wanting to try and poke holes in it. And I just, it, it's an uncomfortable place for me right now because I also really want to do exactly what we're doing. Try to understand it as it was to Isaiah. And if we, and if you can't find God in that, well then maybe you can't find God in it. And that means something too. Anyway, I don't know if that made any sense. Probably not. I I think it makes sense. This is, I mean, there's so much culturally bound up in this text. Yeah. And I I think that we've put, I I think we've loaded a lot of rocks onto this text that it just can't bear. Right. And part of the problem is, so, so if we're speaking frankly, like, I know a lot of people who have left the church because of this text and its connection to the book of Mormon. Yeah. Because when you study it critically, it becomes so apparent that the book of Mormon is, well, I don't want to say apparent. It becomes apparent to many people that the way the book of Mormon negotiates the text is a 19th century reading. Right. That is a very loaded reading through like three subsequent lenses and then we look at the archaeology that we find, like we now have Sennacherib's prism, right? Like we have all of this corroborating evidence that nobody was aware of, Joseph Smith was not aware of. And we look at it and we go, well, it makes more sense in this other way. And that really is a ding against the Book of Mormon's integrity. And so I know people who this text specifically has kind of been the shelf collapsing item. Right. And so this is loaded. And I think it's fair to approach it and and have to hold those tensions in your mind. I, I have absolute sympathy for you uh, struggling with that and for any listener who is. That's hard, no matter what the thing on the shelf is. Yeah, it is. It will always be hard. 
And so I absolutely appreciate that. For me, I, I, I find, you know, and, and I, I'm not saying this in any way to invalidate how you feel. This is just how I'm feeling. To me, reading it in, in, in light of all this corroborating paratext is really freeing for me because it means that I can look in and see something like Emmanuel. And I don't think, I don't think that this has to be a prophecy about Jesus. I think that we can arrive at the divine Jesus with or without that prophecy, right? I don't think Jesus needs to be prophesied at any point, right? I think that's Luke. Like Luke is the one who needs Jesus to be prophesied. Right. That doesn't really matter to Mark. That doesn't really matter as much to Matthew. It does a little to Matthew, but not yeah. as much as to For Mark. Matthew is more about the continuity with the covenant than it is about the prophecies. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's about a dynasty. Yeah. And so, you know, even, even first and second Christ, first and second century Christians are going through that struggle and trying to take the text and negotiate its meaning. But my whole life approaching it and having to take that prophecy as literal and then going back here and just being like, well, so does that mean that in addition to Emmanuel, we need these other two like messiahs? Like, <laughs> like, and which is absolutely not what it's saying. Right. right. And, and having to wrestle with that to me is just incredibly liberating to say, you know, if Jesus is divine and you know, I'm, I don't know, but I like the ability to have more flexibility there than to have to treat this text as a straight jacket. And, you know, I, I have felt like you in the past and I'm not in that place now. So, but I absolutely get it. And I sympathize with anyone who reads this and I hope anyone who's listening, when we say, you know, this isn't really what this is talking about. If you feel that discomfort, absolutely look look at look inside at that discomfort and what it's saying. And if it's necessary, can you unknot it? Or discomfort can often be incredibly instructive. Often it's instructive because it's something we have to untangle. And it can take months. It can take years. It just that's that. Welcome to <laughs> welcome to religion in the 21st century. Yeah. Every religion is doing this. Yeah. And I appreciate that <clears throat> all three of us are at different stages of trying to pour aside, trying to wrestle in that way that Andrew has made it through to the other side. And he's chill with Isaiah. it. On Isaiah. <laughs> and he's chill with it. And that you, Taylor, are in the middle of wrestling. And I'm still at the chunk of like, I don't know enough. I don't know enough to that I just per- have that hat on permanently of not permanently, but like for quite some time I have had my source text hat on. That like I am just I'm not trying to at this chunk trying to tie it in with the Book of Mormon or try tie it like I'm I'm not trying to synthesize anything. I think that's the word I was looking for. I am just consuming information. And I feel like I don't know enough yet to wrestle with anything. And so like sometimes at like two o'clock in the morning I'll start to wrestle and have to be like, no 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 brain. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> We got plenty of episodes to go. Maybe it'll be all untangled by the time we get there. We'll put it off. Have that panic attack later. So it looks like it sucks. I hope I never get there. <laughs> no, I mean, I I resonate with a lot of what Andrew said. Like, I, I find a lot of freedom in it, too, actually. 
I, I just, I want it to be genuine freedom. And like, there's, I fear a sort of another straight jacket where it's like, it can't have divinity. Right. So, so there, to me, like there, there, on the one hand you excavate it and you find like trying to put a straight jacket on it. Like, you know, these books that come out of Deseret book where it's like, you, it just has to mean exactly this thing. And I mean, that's just, <laughs> You, you just have to not read the text. I mean, you don't, you don't need paratext. <laughs> like you just have to only read the verses that they reference to feel comfortable with that, right? And so it is freeing to me to be like, well, there's all these options, right? There's all these options. But I'm not quite ready yet. I don't know if it's a ready yet or, or if it'll stay this way. I, I, I'm hesitant to collapse back into just one other option. Okay, well, it wasn't this, so it's this. Oh, yeah. And therefore, like, everybody else is wrong or deceit or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and I, so I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate that in a way that's both like genuinely in relationship with truth and free to continue gaining more truth instead of just putting a different straight jacket on it. And I just haven't figured out how to do that yet. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. All right. Enough of, enough of Taylor's discomfort. And we've only made it seven chapters. <laughs> Can I wrap up the first section? Yeah, yeah. Just like super rapidly. So chapter nine, we get this notion about a coming king, right? It may This may be a coronation oracle for Hezekiah. That's oh, okay. where a lot oh. of people land. And you get this notion in 10 where it talks about it's God, not Assyria, who rules history. That's because Assyria is currently like rolling history. (laughs) And so it's it's a reminder that, you know what, this this war is coming up Assyria. And we're a little nervous about that, too, even though we're kind of allied with Assyria. But it's God who's using this. And we get this notion in 11. This is kind of where we get some of this restoration notion. But it's still in the context of war generally that a Davidic king will uh, restore scattered Israel. So remember, a southern Judahite king scattered Mm. Israel up north, Mm. and it's going to be a Davidic king who reunites them. Now, Christianity is going to take this to mean Jesus must be a Davidic king, at least Matthew will. We don't really need to reach that same conclusion, um, because when Isaiah is saying this, he's priming the coronation of Hezekiah to probably be that king. And according to Chronicles, remember... It takes it literally that he did reunite them. Hezekiah is the one who's like, okay, we're oh, going yeah, to the, do the Passover. We're going to do a big oh, united yeah. Passover with the North. Yeah. So he actually does achieve Isaiah's proposed Zion. Yeah. So according to Chronicles, this is fulfilled. So you can see that there's different strands of what restoration means to different people at different times. That doesn't need to be exclusive of future restorations. But at least in this segment, Isaiah seems to be speaking about a very tangible restoration that in some part occurs in his lifetime. Yeah. And that's the end of the first section. So likely early in his life, only five to ten years after his calling, um, context of Assyria comes in, wipes out the enemies, etc. That's the first section. So then at the beginning of chapter 13, we have this Babylon pronouncement, which was really helpful to me so i actually got really confused at this point because i knew we were yes. supposed to be reading proto-isaiah and i was like why are we talking about babylon and proto-isaiah wouldn't i put babylon with second isaiah yes so it's really helpful to understand that assyria is wiping out babylon yes because babylon so it has four uprisings 
It uprises in 708 BCE, 703, 700, and then finally in 689. Well, eventually it succeeds. Eventually it's those Babylon. Are, those, are, those are just the four times that it rises up and Assyria beats it. Yeah. Cool. All, you, basically all in Isaiah's lifetime. Wow. So oh. Babylon rising up is actually part likely of the coalition, or at least inspired by the coalition right. between Aram Damascus and Israel. Right. So it rises up. So it is technically nominally the enemy of Judah. Right. Uh-oh. Because Judah is all allied with Assyria. Yeah. Now, for the listener, I feel the need to point out that Andrew just pulled all of those dates out cold. He wasn't even looking at any of his notes. And I'm so proud of him. <laughs> he did all those dates without looking at anything that I feel the need to share that with you. <laughs> the number of dates I know for this time period, like the 700s BCE, is absurd. And then it's like <laughs> this black spot <laughs> going either way for a couple hundred years. And it actually, it, it kind of so so. It makes a lot of sense too. Then to see how the the oracles that come after it against Damascus and Israel, against Ethiopia and Egypt, who we have yeah. said yep. was part of that coalition, and then Babylon and and um, uh, Duman. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we have Moab, yeah, which is to the east of Judah and is taking advantage of the situation to raid them. Oh. Weasels. Yeah, exactly. That's chapter 15. Yeah. So they're to the east of the Dead Sea. So they also get like doom and gloomed. And is the morning there... Are we supposed to read that sarcastically? Because it's kind of has a morning tone about Moab. Well, so remember that these are going to be relations, technically. They're cousins. Yeah. But they don't like them now. Yeah. So there is a sense that they're... Cousins are rough. Yeah. I, I got I got a sense a couple times, and I, I couldn't tell how, like, it's hard to read through the culture, right? So I, I wasn't sure, but I got a sense a couple times. Isaiah struck me as having a little bit less joy in the downfall of all the people he's prophesying against. Yeah, he's, he, so we're, this is great. I'm glad you found that because we're going, it's more, it more belongs to uh, Deutero-Isaiah, but we're starting to see strands of universalism. Yeah. Oh. I, I thought I was. I'm glad. I'm really glad I didn't make that up because like, I had two things going against it: reading through the culture, and also I just like really wanted to like Isaiah. <laughs> so I just knew I was like looking for like. So I was like, "Is this just me trying to read some like?" But I like w- there was another, and I wish I could. I should have written down the passage, but they're talking about Egypt. That I kind of got this sense of like he wants Egypt to be restored the same way he wants Jerusalem to be restored. Yeah. Anyway. So that's, I'm glad that I didn't just make that up. Yeah. And so like with Moab, Moab is raiding, but the reason they're raiding is because they're being pushed on by the other kingdoms. So once we get into chapter 16, he's actually saying the refugees for Moab, we need to shelter them. Hmm. So even though Moab is being collapsed and he's saying that's the judgment of the Lord because there are quote unquote enemies, we still need to shelter their refugees um, because they are also coming into Jerusalem. Fascinating. Yeah, so 17, we get Aram, also known as Damascus. Right. 18, we get Ethiopia, also known as Nubia, also known as Cush. Those are all the same thing. We get some kind of racist statements. <laughs> They're black. How um, unexpected. So he calls them rangy and smooth because they don't have, like, beards. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually calls them a gibberish nation. It literally is a quaqua nation. Like, the way we say, like, if you're speaking... Barbarian is because they say bar, bar, bar. 
That's what the, <laughs> that comes from the Latin from Romans where barbarian is, they would say you're a barbar. You, Ian. you say that as if that's common knowledge, but. I thought it was. <laughs> so it's, don't, don't feel bad. I'm the one he looked at. Like, why are you not nodding along, Amanda? I'm surprised you didn't know that. So he calls like the Nubians a Quaqua nation because apparently they're always like Quaqua Quaqua. Wait so, a second. Wait a second. I have a totally off-topic thing. What does that have anything to do with Babar? The elephant? I, I don't know. I don't think so. It's not as. Who's I don't know who that elephant Babar the elephant? What's that? Yeah, is that a kids book oh. and kids yeah, cartoon? Babar. No, I don't think so. But yeah, the Romans would be like when they heard foreign tongues, it would be bar bar bar. So they'd make fun of you. You're a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that comes from. <laughs> As an aside, I now feel kind of bad because <clears throat> my parents were watching. <laughs> A Nordic murder mystery show the other night, and I just started to giggle because everyone sounded like the Swedish chef. <laughs> <laughs> it's like murder, <laughs> a minor key, washed out color palette, and I just started to giggle about the Swedish chef. And I don't like being like the Romans. It's never something you want to do. And back on target. Okay, so in uh, nineteen. Oh, sorry. Well, I found in nineteen. One of the verses that I had noticed, for the Lord will make himself... So after he destroys Egypt, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians shall acknowledge the Lord in that day, and they shall serve him with sacrifice and oblation, and shall make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. The Lord will first afflict and then heal the Egyptians. When they turn back to the Lord, he will respond to their entreaties and heal them. So it has the same kind of flavor of like punishment then yeah restoration and, and, and talk about a prophecy that like just doesn't happen yeah. well yeah <laughs> like we're, we're very selective in like what's a prophecy and what isn't yeah i mean i'm I, one way one thing i am past is i don't i don't think i don't i don't think god predicts isn't the predicting the future business that's just I, <laughs> well not the telling like, us about his future yeah, prediction just, business i i think of prophecy more like this where isaiah is being a prophet because he's calling the people to be more universal that is how I understand prophecy. Yeah. When he pushes on that. And the context for like 19 and 20, just so you know, why is he talking about Egypt all this much? Um, so in 715, uh, Sargon II actually replaced Azari of Ashdod, which is a Phoenician city, with his brother. But the local people were like, no, we, we liked our king, so they rebel. And no one actually knows who the rebel king was. He was basically either called the Hellene, so the Greek, or the Cypriot, so the person from Cyprus. Hmm. And so probably a Hellenic, you know, Cypriot. Cypriot. Yeah. And, um, and he fights a resistance there um, that's Ashdod's rebellion from Assyria. And this kind of loops in the southern nations, um, Egypt and Ethiopia. Because they're also in the sphere of influence of Assyria. And so this southern city rebelling, they're like, well, let's get in on this. And Egypt and Ethiopia sent messengers to all the nearby kingdoms, including Judah, saying we want to rally support. And Isaiah was the one who was like, no, because he doesn't want to get looped into this. He's on the side of Assyria. He doesn't even want to entertain their messengers. So that's why we kind of get this notion where he, he like complains about like their messengers will be fruitless. Hmm. Like he's super anti even talking to them. Yeah. Avoid the very appearance of allegiances with 
a serious enemies. Yeah. Yeah. We get a really random, as we wrap up this section, we get a really random little political note. I got at N22. Like, he, he makes a plug for, uh, so 22 verse 15 makes a plug for uh, Eliakim, I think. Have I got the right chapter here? Oh, yeah. He, like, really doesn't like someone. And that day I will summon my servant, so it's verse 20, my servant Eliakim, son of Hilka, and I will invest him with your tunic. Gird him with your sash and deliver your authority into his hand. And at least, maybe it was just my footnotes that interpreted this way, but it interpreted like he was making a plug for this guy. Or maybe, yeah, he doesn't like Shebna. Right. Yeah. Hezekiah's major domo. So he wants someone else to take the job. Yeah. I thought it was kind of fun to see this, like, really, like, just explicitly Such a political, yeah. like, insert. And then we get an oracle about Tyre. Remember where Tyre is? Oh my goodness. I just, I need to like have a geography review. Phoenicia. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a Phoenician city. Hence all the references to the sea. Yes. Well, also that it gets wiped out. So that's actually earlier. That's in 734. That's the military campaign of Tiglath Pileser II. Mm. Uh, no, the third. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so embarrassed. So, like, you should be my goodness. So, some of these have already happened. Like, Tyre did get sacked, which obviously for them means any allegiance against Assyria. They're like, well, yeah. So, M- meaning this is a reason not to have an allegiance against Assyria because look what happened to Tyre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and they still exist, right? Like, they weren't totally destroyed. But also Tyre is probably also involved in the negotiations to rise up now against Sargon the Second. Okay. Right. Okay. So Isaiah again, it fits into this theme that we've been saying where Isaiah is going through pronouncing against all of the people who are in on this conspiracy. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, just this is a second conspiracy, right? This is or is Yes. This is a, <laughs> this I know you gave us a review in the beginning, but I feel, like we, I feel like we need a chocolate. I'm feeling like I'm a bad seventh grader right now. Like I'm that kid in your class, you're just like, oh my goodness, I haven't been through this. Yeah, so so all of the this whole section is different oracles against nations that are rabble rousing against Assyria, and he is giving reasons to not ally with them against Assyria. But it's separate from the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. It is connected to it, but it is separate. It's probably okay. the Ashdod crisis. Okay. That Ashdod, so Sargon II right. replaces their ruler. Right. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, but it's related. They're all kind of overlapping. Yeah. My brain latched onto Cypriot, and I don't know why. Yeah, that's, <laughs> the Cypriot is the dude who ends yes. up in charge yeah, I don't know of why. Ashdod. I don't know why my brain went that word. And, like that word. And, and the Assyrians are like, hand him over, and they never do. And he eventually flees to Egypt and lives there for four years until finally Assyria is so threatening that Egypt hands him over for execution. Oh, but David survived. David <laughs> murdered people and he was fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I guess the Cypriot, they are the chosen people. Yeah. Oh. I think that's Cyprus. That's why he doesn't have a noun because he got executed. Yeah. <laughs> the Cypriot. So that's part one and two. No, th- this is part two. So we just that, finished right, part so we two. We just finished part two. So, so we've done part through to 12 is the first and through 13 to 13 through 23, 23 is the second. Yep. the second. So just sort of miscellaneous oracles against foreign nations. Yeah. Okay. 
So keep going. Because that's what we should keep for several thousand years. Miscellaneous oracles. So the last two parts are short then, right? Because it's only 28 through 30. They are a little left. shorter. So we, we're skipping, just so you know, this, it's the Apocalypse of Isaiah, which is likely written much later, like yeah. a, probably a century. It usually is often lumped in with First Isaiah, just for ease of reading. We're skipping it. We'll probably read it later. When we read like Daniel? Yeah, that might be a good spot. Because yeah. that's the that's apocalyptic literature, right? That's the it genre. Is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, through 33. So, yeah, section three, these are oracles against Ephraim and Judah, probably. So this is probably post-721, which means this is after Israel and Ephraim have been de- defeated by Assyria. So there's going to be a lot more condemnation of the north and a warning to the south. Okay, so 28 through 33 is the fourth? Third and fourth. Third so, and fourth. So the, the fourth section of all of the stuff, but it's probably the third real section of Proto-Isaiah. Okay, because we're skipping third That's section. That's correct. We're because skip- it's probably later. A century later. Yep. So 28 through 33 is the fourth section, but the third real section and is probably being written after the... First, after the after so Ephraim has been the, the north Israel has been totally wiped out the Ephraim Syria war yeah this is later and they've been wiped out we've got refugees coming in mm-hmm. and this is what you get for going up against Assyria mm-hmm. nonsense so we should either keep that in or, or summarize it as we enter this section I think I think that's a good summary yeah. Do, yeah okay okay perfect I can't do it again man. <laughs> Holding on to the facts by my fingernails. (laughs) Now, one of the ways we identify this, I'll just throw this in there so you can know, is Isaiah uses certain terms for God. One of them is Lord of Hosts, which between chapters 1 and 39 is used 56 times. Yes. And so the distribution of that is one way we're like, okay, this is probably first Isaiah. That will appear in like the apocalypse and in the section we're skipping later, the problem is it probably means that whoever wrote it noticed that that was part of Isaiah's yeah. language because well, they're smart. Whereas Deutero and Trito Isaiah will not be using certain terms for God anymore. Oh. Now, Lord of hosts, remember what that specifically means is God of armies. Yeah. That's God literally what it means. Yeah. yeah. Hosts is armies. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. For the context, In this context. Yeah, yes. Remember, Amos was a period of peace. Yeah. This is not a period of peace. Yes. Right. And then you can kind of see, too, how he can be an inheritor of Amos's tradition, but also have it be diluted because he has a lot of other concerns yes. that he's got to be dealing with. He, he keeps saying, like, no, you still have to take care of the poor, but also we have to not get destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah. I have a very specific means for us to not get destroyed. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so uh, verse two is where we get particularly verse two of so what? chapter twenty-eight. Okay, so we're starting this third major section. I I will not be the seventh grader. We are Amanda. Oh, I've accepted co- it. We are Amanda in college now. I am asking questions. <laughs> I am paying for this class. So here we are in chapter twenty-eight. We're starting. This is the third major section. This is oracles against Ephraim and Judah. Post seven twenty-one. And what this, so this is going to be, the North has now been destroyed. Yes. The war is over. We're now tributaries of Assyria, but they're starting to get kind of hungry. And here in verse two, we already get a particular part piece of Mormonalia that has been particularly destructive. This is where we get a certain phrase. See, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. 
like a storm of hail, destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. With his hand, he will hurl them down to the earth. You might recall the prophecy in early Mormonism that one day there would be one mighty and strong who would set Mormonism in order for the last days. No. I'm Multiple. Not familiar I with this I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually so, not remembering. So it. this is a common church phrase, especially if you study like Brigham Young. And Brigham Young believed he was the one mighty and strong. The Lafferty's, who uh, did some murders, they thought they were the mighty and strong. Mm. Very recently in the news, Tim Ballard thought he was the one mighty and strong. It takes a certain personality type to even want to be the subject of prophecy let alone to think that you're the subject of prophecy because like i don't want no thank you well thank you well here's the irony you know you know who the one mighty and strong is it's assyria yeah because it's what destroyed ephraim yeah and this is specifically what this is about he's opening by saying ephraim has been destroyed by whom see the lord has one mighty and strong so so is isaiah sucking up hard here to try and prevent the pseudo sacking from Assyria that we know is coming where like even the temple gets stripped. So this, this is possibly kind of in that time period when, when Assyria is starting to grumble more. Yeah. And it does seem like Isaiah is in the placate Syria. Don't go to war with them camp. Yeah. Pretty soundly at this point. Do we know why Assyria is grumbling? I mean, did Jerusalem do something like, against Isaiah's advice to make them angry or is it just they can they need money for war and it really has nothing to do with you do we, do we know Assyria had some really mean kings but also we are going to see that Isaiah does not have his advice followed yeah does that mean he was right well we don't know yeah I mean I mean probably not <laughs> Assyria annexed a whole lot of tributary states including ones that were loyal yeah mm-hmm. so but but i guess part of the answer is they did they they did do some things to needle assyria it sounds like you're saying yes they did yeah okay there's again this uh, there's a sense that comes out of this the strong sense of I, we just saw it with egypt a little while back isaiah wants to believe that all this problem is going to turn into something good. And maybe as you've pointed out, Andrew, he's talking about right then, but this comes up again. I just noticed that he has this parable uh, in chapter 28, verse 23, give diligent ear to my words, attend carefully to what I say. Does he who plows to sow plow all the time, breaking up and furrowing his land uh, when he has smoothed the surface, does he not rather broadcast black cumin and scatter cumin or set wheat in a row? Just kind of this sense of like, there's periods of destruction followed by periods of, yeah. Like th- mm-hmm. that it leads to something useful, right? You break up the ground to do something with it, not yeah. just for the sake of breaking it up. So again, that, that, that theme, um, the Mormon prophecy that I noticed is in chapter 29. Yeah. The sealed, the sealed book. Yeah. And I think it's useful to read it in its original context because we read it from the perspective of Charles Anton, right? Yeah. But It's really telling that that's not what it says. So let's just read it. The vision of all this has become for you like the words of a sealed document. Now, first of all, this is why I wanted to put a pin earlier Mm -hmm. that he doesn't actually even want necessarily, or he's justifying no one understanding what he's talking about. Yeah. So he, so the vision of all this 
has become for you the words of a sealed document. Right. He's talking about this, his own text. Right. And he says, if it is given to those who can read with the command, read this, they say, we cannot for it is sealed. So the educated are not breaking the seal on the scroll. And if it is given to those who cannot read saying, read this, they say, we cannot read. At no point does it say Joseph Smith can read the thing that smart people can't. Yeah. Um, This is specifically him again, hedging and saying, no one understands what no I'm, talking, what I'm about. talking about. Yeah. Melek came up again. Am I remembering right that that's like the couldn't decide if it was a name of a god or a kind of sacrifice? Oh yeah. And it fits as a kind of a sacrifice here. I don't know. Maybe this is superfluous, but I it just something I under uh, thirty thirty three. It's talking about sacrifice throughout there, and Topheth is is destined for Melek. It, it makes it sound like he's going to be sacrificed to God. Read me your 33, please. The Topheth has long been ready for him. Oh, whoops, I misread that. Topheth is not the name. But the Topheth has long been ready for him. He too is destined for Melek. His fire pit has been made both wide and deep, with plenty of fire and firewood, and with the breath of the Lord burning in it like a steam stream of sulfur. Ooh. I needed to go to the footnotes for that because mine says for his burning place has long been prepared. Truly is made ready for the king. Its pyre is made deep and wide. Yeah. So taking it as a proper noun for a king instead of for a God slash verb of sacrifice. Yeah. And it could have been both of those, to be honest, a verb and the name. Yeah. Like to molex someone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not sufficiently terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Your name is just like, my name is sacrifice. And everyone's like, Yikes, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I have a candy bar. Here you go. <laughs> 31 more. Don't rely on Egypt. You might have also noticed, sorry, in 30 that, yeah, he, that he's being excluded from the discussions. Oh, no, I missed um, that. So uh, we don't need to like get into it, but there is the sense that he's not being included probably because he always goes out in the streets and sh- starts sh- shouting about everything. <laughs> we did skip over the part where he was running around naked. Yeah. <laughs> like, Tex actually does say that. Yeah, exactly. He does. And, <laughs> and the King is probably like, well, I would rather Assyria not know that I'm exploring options. Yeah. So I'm going to exclude him from the court discussions about, you know, Assyria. <laughs> and then he runs around outside being like, I'm being excluded from the court discussions about Assyria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can get through this pretty quickly, right? 31. More anti-Egypt stuff. Yeah. Assyria will flee. Which, again, accords more with the defeat of Aram in the previous war than with anything that Assyria is going to do. Um, talks more about how the king, when he's good, isn't going to have any opposition. There won't be oppression. He kind of talks more about this ideal state that will have social justice. And then he gives a prayer of deliverance. Yeah. So pretty quick section, kind of an interwar period. And then we skip to the last section, which is 36 through 39. And honestly, I mean, we've kind of talked about it. This is, like you said, Andrew, it's a merger of the stories and kings of Aram and Assyria. But in this case, it's Assyria that gets driven away. Even though in the text, it is after Hezekiah has given all the, paid a heavy ransom. And Isaiah writes a poem about it. And then we get a poem from Hezekiah. 
Yeah, we, we hear from someone else. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Hezekiah doesn't die. I mean, that's a we saw that story in Kings too. Yeah. Isaiah first tells him he's gonna die, and then he prays. He and prays says, and gets the prophecy changed. And Hezekiah has a poem. And it did kind of read different to me. I mean, I don't know if that was just because I was predisposed to think of it as, but it felt like <laughs> it honestly read a little bit simpler to me. Than oh, some sure, of the other. maybe, yeah. I mean, it could easily be an inclusion from a different author. Yeah. Who knows? I, I have no ability to actually like, <laughs> <laughs> measure that. But uh, I thought that was kind of fun. Hezekiah's poem of recovery. Yeah, we get in 36, this is Sennacherib's defeat. And it says that the angel of the Lord kills 185,000. There is a ton of scholarship that they think the original number was like 5,000. Mm. And that like in earlier transcriptions, and then like they keep adding ones to the start of it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> to make it really big. Like we're forging a check. Yeah. You're like, instead of $100, what if you gave me $1,100? You know? <laughs> but again, and then it says, so it really heavily implies that this is the Lord's punishment, right? And then he leaves and he goes to Nineveh and then he gets assassinated. Once again, this is 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's in chapter 37, verse 36, right? Yeah. You're talking about? Yeah. And note his son, Esar Haddon, succeeded him. So like, despite naming all these people who try to depose his dynasty, his son still rises to the throne. Yeah. So, although it is also two of his sons that kill him, right? Oh, absolutely. But that's the way it usually, usually goes. Yeah, but his chosen son did succeed him. And we know that from paratext, from other texts. Yes. I said. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we get the Babylonian envoys. This is a weird story. I mean, it makes sense to me that, especially now that we've talked about Babylon being an enemy of Assyria, that uh, Isaiah is... Okay, wait a minute. Actually, it's not making as much sense to me. So is he back on Team Assyria now then in 39? Because he's kind of... With, with the Assyrian siege, at least the way the text was just showing it to us, he's gone against Assyria a little bit. I think and, I think that he kind of still wants to keep out of things. Yeah. Like Babylon okay. has a really bad track record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, all, in a way, he's wrong, right? Because if he had gotten on Babylon's good side, maybe the next century would have gone a little better. Yeah. But you notice again that like Hezekiah is doing all this stuff and Isaiah seems to be excluded from it. And so he gets kind of grumpy again. And Hezekiah's response is weird because <laughs> Isaiah's like, you know, you're going to be punished for this. And Hezekiah declared to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good for. He thought <laughs> it means that safety is assured for my time. It almost makes you wonder now if there's some sarcasm there. Hezekiah's just like, Maybe, I don't know. Anyway. maybe there could be, there's often sarcasm. That's just very hard to <laughs> yeah, draw mean, out of the text. Yeah. But anyway, he's just apparently more worried about his own life than what's coming next. Well, that seems to be a theme. Yeah. It's all right. God will punish four generations in the future. That's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's first Isaiah. Wow. We did it. We did it. I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I was Thank hoping. you for listening. Yeah. Oh, what were you going to say, Andrew? Oh, nothing. Nothing, nothing. You were hoping... Oh, I was hoping we reached the end and Taylor would be like, actually, I am comfortable now. <laughs> but I didn't have myself. So you were also, time. Ho- also hoping for pigs to fly, <laughs> Taylor yep. to be comfortable. <laughs> 
comfortable sometimes. I hmm. haven't seen it. <laughs> I have manageable scrupulosity, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Third Hour Podcast. Thank you for joining us. This was The Third Hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at thethirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.